Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. And guess what? Before I even tell you anything else, I got big, big, big news here. Bonus episodes of The New Abnormal will soon be available publicly. This means you'll see bigger guests, the real high-profile types who don't get out of bed for anything less than those 50,000 listeners. It also means you'll need to start listening to our public feed once we stop updating this private one. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcast for links to all the platforms on which The New Abnormal is available and look forward to getting a new episode from us every Sunday with even more fun. Okay, on to this episode. Today we have an extra special guest with Gall Beckerman, who's the senior editor for books at The Atlantic and was formerly that editor at The New York Times Books. And he's author of The Quiet Before on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. And we're going to talk to him all about that today. Welcome to the new abnormal, Gal Beckerman. Thank you so much for having me. One of my trademarks is that I butcher everyone's names. <laughs> um, it's really good. It's really good in a host. People really appreciate it. <laughs> um, so The Quiet Before the Storm, The Quiet Before, I got to butcher the title too, um, <laughs> explain to us the unexpected origins of radical ideas go. So this is a book that, generally speaking, is about how political and social change is made. And more specifically, I am was responding to what I'd seen in the last 10, 15 years of social movements. That is, movements that seem to grab our attention in very big, dramatic ways, sometimes even change a cultural conversation, and then seem to kind of fizzle out and not be able to fulfill the promises that they had sort of made or the desires that they themselves had to really change structurally something about the foundations of, of, of society or politics. And so I, I wanted to kind of figure out if there was a step that was maybe being missed. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that so many of these movements were born on social media, developed on social media, sort of gave me a hint in that they seem to follow a kind of a similar metabolism. You know, this, this, uh, this, this energy of being able to sort of pull people to look at you, uh, and then to move on a, 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 a uh, incentive structure where you're trying to kind of gain followers or likes. Um, and then, and then you kind of move on to the next thing that grabs attention. And the thing that was missing was the quiet before was, was this space where people could talk amongst themselves, imagine, uh, debate one another, refine ideology or strategy and build a more solid base of identity as being part of a, of a sort of an oppositional group. All of that kind of, there's no space for it, obviously, on social media. I don't even need to make that argument. We know that Twitter is just not a place to do that. And the fact that it was missing from movements uh, really 
struck me and worried me. And so part of the book was sort of looking historically pre-digital to understand where other movements, you know, in the hundreds of years before the internet, where they found the quiet before, what, what media did they use to sort of talk amongst themselves? And then to sort of then look at the last decade or so and understand the way that the internet has affected how, how movements develop now. And what did you find with these pre-internet movements? Oh, it was, first of all, it was fascinating. I mean, I love doing that kind of archival historical work, which is what I had to do for that part of the book. And I, and I was in, essentially seeking out stories. I wanted to tell stories of vanguards, of groups of people that had come together, again, in a sort of a mediated way uh, to make change. And so I start back uh, before the scientific revolution in the 17th century uh, and look at letters and the role that letters played in sort of fermenting a new relationship with, with nature, a new way of observing and looking at, at reality. And I take it up through petitions in the 19th century in England, early 19th century in England, and the role they played in developing a, a working class sensibility uh, through the Chartist movement. Go to the Soviet Union and look at Samizdat, which was this underground sort of past hand-to-hand self-published writing that allowed a shadow civil society to exist really in, in the middle of a, of a, of a totalitarian society. And, you know, all the way to zines in the 90s and, uh, the oh, r- yeah, and Riot zines. Girl, yeah. Right. So I look at how third wave feminism and sort of the, the, the voice of third wave feminism developed through, through zines. And what I learned sort of in a nutshell is that the sort of spaces that these forms of communication provided were intimate, allowed for a back and forth, gave people a chance to test out ideas and to egg one another on. We think of kind of the word safe space, the expression safe space is a really sort of negative thing because people associate it with, you know, not wanting to have your ideas challenged. But there's sort of a flip side to that, which is like a a kind of a medium that creates a safe space also gives people an opportunity to come together and and really refine and test out their ideas as a group, you know, before they're really ready to launch them out. It's interesting that you were talking about this because I was thinking about how much reporting, even like reporting, not even analysis or opinion, how much reporting is shaped by the kind of ideas that keep being batted around. And like Twitter obviously has a negative connotation for being sort of shaping the narrative around situations and ideas. But you really see how much that's true with almost all of everything you see. So this is really interesting because you really can be wrong back then. Yeah, it seems so obvious, but we've sort of lost this sense that, you know, there has to be a place where you fail a little bit, you know, right. where you where you try out things, you know, where you obviously, we, you know, we live in this culture right now where shaming is such a is such a big part of, of how we sort of publicly <laughs> communicate with one right. another. And there's not really a lot of room to try out ideas. I'll, I'll give you sort of a negative example from the book. I actually look at groups of white supremacists who came together before Charlottesville. And I got access through some lefty hackers, a group called Unicorn Riot, uh, gave me access to thousands and thousands of messages that they had inside of a closed chat room on, on, a, on a platform called Discord. Yes. Yes. Maybe people know yeah, what I'm saying what it is. is if nobody knows what it is. Um, I didn't uh, because it's mostly for gamers, I think. Uh, or right. at least well, it was now it's then. more popular. But yes, yes, right, yes. Right. Early on it was. So they thought they were having sort of private 
quiet space. This is not Reddit. There's no upvoting. Right. It's definitely not Twitter or any of these other places that are right, sort of outward join. facing. You have to join. It's moderated. And what was interesting to me is because there's no features that sort of push up or allow you to like or favorite things, it is really a conversation. And it's a, it was a conversation amongst themselves. And, and that I found fascinating because in some ways this was the testing ground of what I was proposing, which is that it's important to have that sort of space. And it was really fascinating because, you know, in these months before Charlottesville, you know, they were, what they were trying to do was bring together all these different strands of the right, right. It was unite the right. Um, but, but they were kind of in their world, the deep ideological differences, like how anti-Semitic are you, you know, (laughs) do the Jews go into the gas chamber or do we just not talk to them? Um, and so, they needed to work all of it out. And they really did in this space. And the way that they talked to each other was filled with so much more kind of earnestness and like listening to each other and, and, and working out on optics. Optics was a big thing for them because the whole notion of what they were trying to do is to gain some respectability among certain demographics in America that they felt might be amenable to their ideas if, they didn't weren't turned off by like the Nazi, you know, neck tattoo. So how do we actually get to a place where we can figure out what our outward facing uh, look is going to be? And it was down to like the, you know, do we wear white khakis or, you know, like, and then, you know, they were trying to bring the proud boys along, you know, and the proud boys were sort of on the, on, on the cusp of at that time of being sort of having a, not being quite as marginalized, you know, they were trying to present themselves as not being white supremacists. And so, but they thought these would be good allies. And so there was a lot of strategizing and talking about sort of how do we approach them? How do we bring them along? What, what do we have to sacrifice and give up in terms of our ideology to sort of bring them in. So all this was really fascinating because it gave me a vision of what it means to have that kind of space. And it really is one in which you have a lot more freedom in a strange way to let ideas sort of flourish on their own terms. Yeah, but they were still Nazis. They were still Nazis. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) There was no point where they were like, hey, what about Jews? They're not great. You know, maybe we should give them another chance. No, but what they they wanted to achieve ultimately with that was some degree of respectability and their sense of what respectability meant. And they had the president tell them that they were very fine people, you know, so that's, that was, they, they, they achieved something then for themselves. You know, it was obviously then pushed back in a big way and they were sort of sent into deeper and deeper holes and kind of lost even the spaces that they had to communicate. But in that brief moment, it was really interesting to see what they did with a sort of, I mean, they'd hate the term, but with a safe space, you know? Yeah. Explain to me what industrialization and the internet did to these ideas. You're talking about how the origin of these ideas radical ideas. How did the internet change the way we come up with radical ideas? At first, you know, there was a lot of dreaminess about what the internet could actually provide for small groups of people who wanted to come up with new ways of arranging reality, let's say. And I have a chapter there that for me was kind of a pivotal chapter, which is, you know, cyberspace, you know, this moment in the, in the eighties and the nineties where people began to speak online. Uh, and even before the internet, uh, the chapter I look at was before there was an actual internet, just on, on sort of message boards that they would dial into. And it was the first time that people were speaking in a disembodied way and practically in real time. And a whole sort of philosophy or ideology emerged from this sense that 
oh, this, this is a revolutionary tool. This is something that's going to bring people together around ideas and allow like-minded people to find each other and to sort of incubate new, new things uh, in, a, in a way, in a much more, in a way that would kind of add scale and speed to it. Um, so we don't have, we don't need the coffee shops or the petitions or the Sami's dot or the, you know, the letters we, we can just, we can do it so simply. And I think that dream still exists in the recesses of a lot of Silicon Valley, uh, you know, moguls minds <laughs> that that's what they're doing. But the problem is that kind of capitalism happened, you know, and, and everything became so, as we well know, so consolidated and the places where we come to have communication on Line are you know now dominated by a few companies as we know and they have incentive structures you know in, in which they, they want a certain kind of speech and they don't want another kind of speech it's funny I, I thought a lot about sort of what the term social meant or means you know and the different kinds of meanings it can have and the way that shifted when the internet came along and there is the kind of social that I feel on social media is the social of like a cocktail party, you know, like I think about it as you go and you're just like, you know, you're chatting with lots of different people and it's noisy and you sort of half hear everything. And then somebody makes a joke and everyone turns in their direction, like a glass breaks on the other side of the room and everyone kind of, you know, looks to see what happened over there. And then you, you get home at the end of the night after two or three hours, you're taking off your shoes and you're like, did I connect with anybody? Did I talk, really talk to anybody? And we all know that feeling. That's a kind of social. But then there's the social of, you know, five people sitting around a table or huddling together, really intensely talking about something, you know, and... Overthrowing the government. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Overthrowing the government or even just imagining, say, you know how could policing look different or, you know, and that is a kind of social also, but I feel like the internet sort of shifted one model of that sociability that was sort of the dream of the internet into an, into another. So basically you're saying it made everything much more superficial, which is why I like it. It made it superficial, but look, the platforms need us to sort of communicate in a certain way, right? They need us to kind of keep pinging, ponging around 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 and interacting in sort of ways that are sticky right and and and, and they don't right. want they don't want focus you know they don't yeah. want a focused conversation about one thing you know i i think they it's, that's not something that they would even deny it's just not what it's built for you know and and the problem in a way it's it's not just with them it's also with us it's it's our confusion of of what it means to be social you know that that we think that going on those platforms is the same thing as sitting around a table talking with five people because it and it's not and i think with for for activists and you know what, I, I'd want to amend that to say that we kind of understand that now when it comes to our personal lives, right? Like we don't, there's no illusions about what's happening for most of us who are sort of self-aware on, on, on social media. We know that there's a performance quality to it. We know that we're sort of having conversations through bullhorns, right? But I think that when it comes to social movements, there is still this kind of fantasy of, you know, all we need to make change in the world is for a hashtag to go viral, you know, and, and I'm being a little like facile about it, but I do think no, that, the, I, I do think that there's people who really feel like that. And a lot of activists who spend their energy focused in that direction and brands yeah, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I'm curious what your prescriptive is for this. I mean, I think ultimately what I came out of the historical journey feeling is that people need to find a way to like recreate those, those tables, you know, those spaces where they can come together and have conversation. And, you know, that might seem like a simple answer, but it's actually not considering how attracted we are to the, to the virality, (laughs) to, to, to to going viral. You know, when I, I I spent a lot of time, one of the chapters was about these Black Lives Matter groups. There's two of them that I was sort of got very close to and was looking at one in Florida and one in uh, Minneapolis. And the one in Florida called the Dream Defenders, they had actually, they, in the middle of the, the sort of height of Black Lives Matter in 2015, 16, they decided to just go offline completely. They did what they called a blackout. They did like three or four months where everybody in the group deleted their, you know, their apps. And it was a pretty dramatic move at a moment when, you know, they, they told me, you know, you would open up magazines and they would have lists of the most influential activists. And it was Twitter accounts that they were looking, follower accounts that they were looking at. So that was the kind of currency at the time. And they were saying, no, we're kind of losing our bearings here. We're so focused on gaining popularity on on the platforms that we're not, we're, we don't even know what's going on in our communities. And so, for example, you know, they believed in abolishing the police, right? They were, they were part of that sort of kind of ideological framework. Once they did this blackout, they started going out to the neighborhoods that they were supposedly, you know, organizing and working in. And knocking on doors and talking with people, having kind of small conversations. And they began to quickly realize that the people that they were sort of arguing, you know, in favor of abolishing the police for didn't want to get rid of the police. And this was a, a kind of a shocking thing for them to learn. And they realized that they needed to redirect their work. They needed to, to, to focus it more on sensitizing people to the different ways that policing can happen, that the community safety can happen, and and sort of introducing some of their own thoughts in a conversation. And it was, but the important first step for them was sort of, you know, unlatching themselves from this kind of boom and bust, you know, that we feel all day long on social media, that 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 was really important and finding other communications tools. I guess that's that's the takeaway is there are other ways to do this online. I'm not suggesting that we unplug the internet. Like, I, you know, this is not the kind of a cyber pessimist book in that way. It's more about having a kind of self-awareness about the tools that we're using to talk to one another, especially when we're talking about activists in these movements or in nascent movements, that there has to be, in addition to the megaphone that you can pick up, there also has to be that quieter sort of space where you can huddle and figure things out. Because the truth is, you know, and this was very true of the Black Lives Matter activists I talked to, is that when those moments of heightened attention happen. And we know when, when the whole country was turned in their direction, they felt like they, they had not had that time before to really prepare to take full advantage of it. And so a lot of them felt like that the winds of that moment were sort of the symbolic winds, the winds of attention. And, you know, and, and yes, it's, it's true. There were concepts suddenly thrown into the American bloodstream that hadn't been there before, you know, that were important, but they didn't feel that they had had a chance to sort of build the foundation and that needs to happen sort of more locally and sort of off, off the grid. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was great. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of the new abnormal from the daily beast. 
In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.